Please remain standing and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. read this whole chapter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminders so that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. Our sermon text now is going to be from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. 
This is five books from the end of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. All right. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep on, sweep by like the wind, and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Amen. You may be seated. There's an expression that you've probably heard before. Uh, People actually say it in different ways. Uh, Sometimes they'll say God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Uh, Sometimes God can strike a straight stroke. My personal favorite is God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Um, and often people will use that um, talking about Christians, talking about the Christian life. Uh, you know, we're these crooked sticks, we're sinners, we're messed up people, uh, all kinds of weaknesses and failures and problems. And yet, God in his mysterious wisdom has decided to use us to carry out his mission in the world. And that's true, uh, but that's not why I'm bringing up the phrase today. Today and next week as well, I'd like us to think of that saying in a little bit different context. Um, And I'm actually not going to spell it out for you just yet. I want to see if you can figure out what I mean by that as we go along today, that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. We're going to divide this um, opening passage of Habakkuk into three parts. First is going to be a hard question, verses 1 to 4. Second will be an unexpected answer, verses 5 through 8. And then third, a crooked stick, verses 9 to 11. So a hard question, an unexpected answer, and a crooked stick. 
Uh, but we need to start, as we have done at the beginning of each of these minor prophets, with uh, a little bit of history. Uh, over the past several months, as we've been going through these minor prophets, starting with Jonah, um, who lived in the, the middle of the 8th century, or the 700s B.C., um, think about that time. At that time, um, the Assyrian Empire, okay, the capital city is Nineveh. Remember, Jonah has to go to Nineveh. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was going through, a, actually at that time, a sort of lull or, or downturn in its imperial power. Um, a few decades after that, Assyria had grown uh, much more powerful and was once again threatening uh, both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, that was the situation under the prophet Micah. Prophet Micah. So 722 BC, uh, Assyria overruns the northern kingdom. They destroy the, the capital city of Samaria. They carry the ten northern tribes into permanent exile. About 20 years later, 701 BC, the same thing almost happens to Judah and Jerusalem. You remember Sennacherib's army marches in, lays siege to the capital city, but in that case, God miraculously rescues. King Hezekiah, city of Jerusalem. All of that is happening in Micah's time frame. Well, then we come to Nahum. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Well, Nahum is about how God now is going to turn around and judge Assyria. Okay. God is now going to judge Assyria. Assyria has been an instrument of God's judgment in the past, but now Assyria is going to be the object of God's judgment. Nahum is prophesying in the middle of the 600s. Um, and Nineveh did, in fact, fall to the Medes in 612 B.C. Capital city destroyed. Okay. So by the time of Habakkuk, the Assyrian Empire has now fallen. The prophecy of Nahum has been fulfilled. Nineveh is toast. And there's a great shakeup going on then um, in the world around Judah. So Babylon is now on the rise, uh, but Babylon is not the only major player on the world stage at this point. Another major player is the nation of Egypt. Egypt, okay, so Egypt, if you imagine these two superpowers, and you can think of all kinds of analogies today, kind of jockeying for power among the world's superpowers, and they kind, of, they kind of want to contain each other. Each one doesn't want the others to get too powerful or gain too much influence in other parts of the world. Well, the same thing is going on in the ancient world. Egypt wants to keep Babylon contained. They see this new power arising, and they want to make sure, well, let's not let Babylon get too powerful. Now, if you can try to think of a map in your mind, some uh, you, you're, you're probably... Uh, have varying familiarity with the with the geography here, but just to explain, kind of in modern terms, Babylon is is very close to modern Baghdad in Iraq, and so you have that up in the, up in the Middle East, Mesopotamia. Think of where Iraq is now, and then you know where Egypt is, of course, down to the southwest uh, in North Africa. Well, what's in between? If you want to get from Egypt to Babylon, or from Babylon to Egypt, where do you have to pass through? You're not going to go around in the Arabian Desert. You have to pass through Israel. Israel is stuck in the middle of this conflict. And so, between the destruction of Nineveh in 612 and the destruction of Jerusalem 
which does in fact happen just 26 years later in 586 BC. A big part of Judah's story is the question, what are we going to do about Babylon to the north and Egypt to the south? Who are we going to align with? Who are going to be our allies? Who are going to be our enemies? You may remember uh, the end of the life of uh, the good king Josiah. Josiah was one of Judah's best kings, but there's a great error he made at the end of his life when he goes out and he tries to stop Pharaoh Necho from marching northward through Israel to go up to fight against the Babylonians. Pharaoh Necho wanted to go and help the last kind of remnants of the Assyrian army to hold out against Babylon. And King Josiah gets killed in uh, 609, I believe that one was. Um, Well, after Josiah is killed by the Pharaoh, Pharaoh now has uh, big influence in Judah, and he gets to decide who is going to sit on the throne after Josiah, which son is going to get to be king. Pharaoh becomes the kingmaker for Judah. And um, he decides on um, king who ends up being named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. That name should uh, have bad associations for you. He's one of the bad kings. He reversed basically everything good that his father Josiah had done in terms of getting rid of the idols and bringing Judah back to the Lord. And it is under Jehoiakim... Um, scholars that I rely on say sometime between 609 and 605. I think that's a very good guess for the uh, writing of Habakkuk, for the context where this prophecy is coming to us between 609 and 605 B.C., after the death of Josiah, under King Jehoiakim, but before it has quite become clear the extent of the threat of the Babylonians, that they're going to be to Judah in the very near future. All right. I know that is a lot of historical detail. I just want to acknowledge that. I know it's a lot, and uh, that's I, I have done my best to cut it down to the bare minimum, the kind of things that will help us to understand this book. There's a lot more we could say. Ask me about it later, and we can uh, enthuse about the ancient Near Eastern history. But the reason I've shared these particular details is that it really helps to explain Habakkuk's complaint in verses 2 through 4. Um, that's the first reason. So Habakkuk is living under the reign of a wicked king, Jehoiakim. It's not like things were under Josiah. Jehoiakim is a very different kind of leader, and we're going to talk about that more in a second. There's a second reason this historical background helps us out. It explains why, in verses 5 and 6, why it seems so surprising that it's Babylon who's going to end up overrunning Judah. It um, helps to know, you see the word Chaldeans there, helps to know the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are the same people. The Chaldean is the, the kind of ethnic name. Babylon is their capital city. So it's the Chaldeans living in Babylon, right? S- same group of people. Um, so think about this. Who's the major world power that the people of Judah are most afraid of right now? It's not Babylon. It's clearly the Egyptians, the Egyptians who have just killed their last king and put their current king on the throne. Okay? So they're concerned about Pharaoh of Egypt, not Nabopolassar of Babylon. Okay? And that's why it's so surprising, unbelievable even, for God to say, I'm raising up the Chaldeans of all people. They're the ones who are going to bring the hammer of judgment crashing down on Judah and its king. All right, so 
A lot of background information. Let's try to get into the text now. The oracle, first one, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Stop there. This book as a whole is inspired prophecy. That's important to keep in mind as we enter upon this dialogue. Habakkuk is unique in the way that he sets up the beginning of his prophecies in this question and answer format. He asks these hard questions of the Lord and the Lord responds to him. And so on one level, we can see this as a window into a very personal interaction between the prophet and the Lord. As the prophet's sort of very raw and honest frustration and confusion and then the Lord responding and helping him, answering him um, in that place of, of difficulty and, and confusion. But even as we see that element of the prophecy, we don't want to forget along the way, chapter 1, verse 1, that this whole thing, the questions and the answers, both are prophetic. They are both inspired. In other words, Habakkuk's questions here do not take God by surprise. This isn't a battle where Habakkuk is kind of forcing God to defend himself. It is actually the Lord himself who has moved, who has inspired his prophet to ask him these very hard questions in these very candid ways. This is God taking the initiative to move towards Habakkuk and towards everyone who's still faithful to him in these very dark times in Judah, to say, I know this is hard. I want you to ask me about it. I know things don't make sense to you. And here's my answer. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Okay, so let's look at Habakkuk's first question. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? I'm sure you've heard people say that um, when God answers prayer, he does not always say yes. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. Habakkuk is experiencing right here what, what it's like for God to say no, or for God to say wait for a very long time. To the point where he starts to wonder, to have those questions arise in his heart, does God really hear me at all? Is God even listening in the first place? Does God plan to give me any kind of answer? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? In other words, look look at wrong going on in the world and not do anything about it. Remember, he's living under King Jehoiakim, right? So 2 Kings 23:37 says and he did evil he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Jehoiakim of course was only king because Pharaoh had made him king. And when Pharaoh said jump Jehoiakim said how high? It's that kind of uh, relationship and so um, listen to what else 2 Kings says it says and Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh but he taxed the land to give the money According to the command of Pharaoh, he exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And 2 Chronicles 36, 
<clears throat> speaks of the abominations that he did. Uh, and then Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah and Habakkuk would have been contemporaries. And uh, Jeremiah 26 records the story of how Jehoiakim hunted down and executed, murdered the prophet Uriah and uh, dumped his dead body, it says, into the burial place of the common people and because, simply because he didn't like what he had to say. He didn't, he couldn't, he, he didn't like the truth that um, Uriah, the prophet, was speaking to him. So that is the kind of man that Habakkuk had to call king. Habakkuk had known, of course, very different kinds of times in Judah. He had lived under King Josiah's reign and the great revival and the Reformation, the rediscovery of the book of the law, the, 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 the destruction of the idols and the high places, the restoration of the Passover, all these things that took place under Josiah. But now things are so different than they were under that good king. And the king is on the throne now, who's supposed to be in charge of administering God's justice among God's people. He's supposed to be defending the innocent, right? Well, he's doing the exact opposite of what his calling calls for. Everything is upside down. The law is paralyzed. Justice, he says, never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes, when it does go forth, it goes forth perverted. This is not the way things are supposed to be in Israel. And Judah and Habakkuk is, is thinking, where is God in all of this? If God is who he is, then how can all this be happening? He doesn't seem to be correcting or, or, or restraining all of this chaos and this evil in Judah's public life. So what is going on? God just seems to be allowing it. He seems to just be letting it go on. It's very much like the way that David prays throughout the Psalms. He often says, how long, Lord? How long is this going to go on? Before you do something about it, before you intervene and put a stop to it, set things right again. It's really important to understand this is not a rebellious prayer. This is not accusing God, pointing the finger at him as though he's doing something wrong. What it is saying is, Lord, I, I, I don't get it. And it is getting to be a really long time to wait. What is going on here? I don't understand. And this is something that God's people have felt so many times in history in so many ways. It's something that even today, especially the persecuted church, is asking these kinds of questions all over the world. We should be asking with them as one church, the Lord Jesus. And frankly, in your personal life at different times, maybe even right now, maybe something that you have cried out to God from your personal experience of just the long, long hardnesses of life and being sinned against and the, the things that just won't let up, the, the, these, these struggles that haven't gone away. They just persist and they're always there. Now, frankly, as a preacher, I'd like to be able to go on now and just jump right to the comfort you know, and, and sometimes when these sorts of questions come in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, um, that's, what, that's what happens. You, you have the question and then immediately you get this answer that, where God says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. He, he responds with all these promises. So that's, that's my kind of preacher instinct. Sticking with the text that we have before us today, I have to deal with the fact that in this case, that's not the kind of answer God gives, at least not yet. So let's... 
Let's stay in the flow of Habakkuk's thought here and God's answer to this particular question at this moment in Judah's history. God's initial answer does not come across at all as good or comforting news. Except for the fact that he does answer. And he does acknowledge, yes, you're right, Habakkuk. Yes, you have correctly diagnosed the problem. Yes, Habakkuk, I do see. Yes, Habakkuk, I am going to answer. I am going to do something about this. But you need to know that my answer, in this case, is going to be a very severe answer. My answer is going to take the form of judgment on the entire nation of Judah. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. It's like he's, it's like he's saying, well, you're not going to believe this, but... That's the kind of uh, impact of this way of putting things. But, you know, I'm actually raising up the Chaldeans to march in judgment on Judah. So we have to remember, why is this so astounding, unbelievable? A couple reasons. One is that the Chaldeans um, haven't really been the enemy that Judah's really concerned about. Surely if a foreign power is going to harm us, it's going to be Egypt who's hurt us so much already. But God says, no, it's it's going to be the Chaldeans. Um, That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, this this expansionist empire that you still think of as second-rate. In fact, maybe you even think that Egypt will be able to protect you against them. And that's a mistake that one of uh, Judah's kings makes later on. Rebels against Babylon thinking Egypt's going to protect them. That seriously backfires on Judah uh, in their near future history. But God says, no, I, I know right now this probably seems unbelievable to you, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, I am going to deal with the injustice. I am going to punish Jehoiakim for his tyranny and his idolatry. And I'm going to do it in a way that right now he simply doesn't see coming. But I do. And now you do. Because I care that you know that I care. That's the Lord's message here for Habakkuk. I I care that you know that I'm not ignoring and glossing over all of this wrong. Even though my timeline for dealing with it might be different from, from your ideal timeline. And as you get to the end of this description of the Chaldean or Babylonian army, the Lord is very frank next about the most surprising part of this whole thing. When he says that these are guilty men that are going to judge Judah. Guilty men whose might is their God. You know, God could, if he had chosen, God could have sent an army of angels from heaven to judge Judah conquer them and destroy Jerusalem if he had wanted to. But he's not going to do that. How humbling, how devastating this is for Judah's judgment to come at the hands of, by means of, a nation as wicked and violent and arrogant and godless and idolatrous as the Babylonians. I want to get too far into this because Um, The rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is is about exactly this point. Um, How can God use such a a terrible, awful, godless enemy to judge his covenant people? So that's that's for next week. But for now, it'll be enough, I think, just first introduce 
this big picture concept. Coming back around to where we started, that that God is intending here to strike a straight blow, a straight lick against Judah and Jerusalem using a very, very crooked stick, Babylon. And in in, in fact, this is part of what makes this judgment so uh, serious and terrifying. They have to know this is not an enemy who's going to care that you're the people of God. They could care less. Um, They're not going to think of you as special. They're not going to give you special treatment. They're not going to show you any mercy because they fear me. They, They don't. Nonetheless, Habakkuk and all of those in Judah who are still faithful, still loyal to the Lord, should know that when this happens, that it's not happening outside God's control. It's something that's happening under God's sovereign, wise, and just direction. There's a lot more to say about that final point of the crookedness of the stick of Babylon. We're going to keep that till next week. So for today, I want to finish with just three lessons that I think that we can learn from this opening first question and answer. The first lesson is this, that the Lord is never ignoring the injustice and evil you see in the world, even when it feels that way to you. The Lord is never ignoring the injustice and evil that you see in the world, even when it feels that way to you. It can feel, and it has felt to so many godly people at so many times, that God isn't paying attention. But in his word, he continues to give us these reassurances. I do know, I do see, I am not ignoring your pain. I am going to act. Um, In fact, often the reason that he hasn't acted yet actually has to do with his patience. His patience is something O. Palmer Robertson points out on this passage. It is actually God's long-suffering with Judah. The Lord was so patient with them. He waited so long through so many bad kings, so many periods of apostasy, before the final judgment finally fell. He gave Judah every opportunity, time after time after time, to repent and turn back to him. So we don't always know what God's reasons are for not acting yet in the way that we would like him to. Sometimes it's actually because God is more merciful than we are. We've got to, therefore, learn, like Habakkuk, to trust him. To to listen to his promise that, yes, he is going to act in his time and in his way. So Habakkuk was not the first and certainly not the last believer to feel the way that he did about this. And you just think about those 400 years of silence in between the Testaments. Think about men and women like Simeon and Anna waiting and waiting and waiting for the promise of the Savior. How long, O Lord? But, Galatians 4, when the fullness of time, that's what God was waiting for, the fullness of time, the right time, When the fullness of time had come, God did send forth his son. At the right time, Romans 5, 6 says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And at the right time, be assured of this, that at the right time, God will answer you. He will surely bring to resolution 
all of the harsh dissonances of your life into a harmony that you cannot hear right now, but he can hear it. He's going to bring it to your ear in the end. The second lesson from this first question and answer is that no matter how long God's justice may be delayed, it will be carried out without fail. It certainly seemed like the leaders of Judah were sinning just with impunity, that the king was literally getting away with murder. But he wasn't. This is part of the message of 2 Peter 3 that we read earlier. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. No, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The invasion of the Chaldeans, (laughs) that pales in comparison to the, the, the cataclysm of the second coming of Jesus. And so Peter asks in that chapter, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And I want you to hear this warning this morning. If you are living in persistent sin and you're refusing to turn to Christ in faith, Please know the judgment may be postponed for a time, in part to give you that opportunity to repent because God is so patient with you. But it is coming, and you had better be ready when it does. You had better be in Christ when that judgment comes, turning away from your sin and clinging to him as your refuge when that judgment arrives at last. And it could at any moment. This is an urgent message for you to hear and warning for you to heed. Turn to Christ. Now, the last lesson, which again we'll continue next time, is just that one that we started with. To be reminded that God is powerful enough and wise enough and good enough to strike straight licks with crooked sticks. The wickedness of the instrument is no obstacle to God carrying out his purposes. I mean, you can see that it it doesn't end with the Babylonians. You can see it most clearly of all in the death of Jesus himself, right? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, Peter says, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2. God's judgment against your sin. Carried out by the hands of godless, wicked people. But, you see, this is the wonder of the gospel. Almost unbelievable, except that it's the, only, it's the one thing that we delight most of all to believe. That that judgment was carried out not on you, but on Jesus in your place. That final judgment of God, which you see described here, that's what you and I deserve. That's what you and I have earned. But it fell on Christ instead. And so for all of the bad news of this chapter for the nation of Judah, that is good news for the people of God. Let's pray. Our great God, this is not a cheerful beginning to this book. And yet we're so thankful that it's here 
for you to show us that you see, that you hear our heart cries when things don't make sense and when the evil seems so great and too strong for us. And so, our God, we pray that you would hear us, hear our cry in this moment in history. When we cry, how long? We ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and set to right everything that's wrong. Make all things new as you've promised. In the meantime, give us patience to wait and to trust you. Stir up our hearts to heed the warnings, to turn, to flee from that coming judgment into the arms of our Savior Christ, who was born your wrath in our place. Rescue us from it to make us yours forever. So we trust in him today and ask that you would keep us in him. As we pray in his name, amen.